Lord, we thank you for the time that we've had to be able to, to see how the phenomena of Christmas, Lord, has uh, affected your people, the church. And that through this, Lord, we uh, see how we desire to honor you, to make much of Jesus coming into the world. We pray, Lord, that we would have that same spirit as we think about um, the way that we honor the Lord Jesus' incarnation uh, as we praise him in song. And so, Lord, we pray as we have this final lecture that you would bless him and that through him you would bless us, Lord. We love you. We thank you for your care and your concern for us. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. That. So this is on Christmas carols and Christmas music from the Virgin Mary to Mariah Carey. One can argue that the very first Christmas carol is the Nificat, the song that the Virgin Mary sings when she rejoices along with her relative Elizabeth, the child in her womb is the Lord. It is recorded in Luke chapter 1. It is called the Magnificat because the word magnify in the, in the, uh, the word magnify in the opening phrase, my soul doth magnify the Lord. In Latin, that word comes first in the phrase. I'm quoting from the King James Version because that is what was used uh, when it was said in English uh, in classical compositions. It begins, my soul doth magnify the Lord, and my spirit hath rejoiced in God my Savior, for he hath regarded the lowly estate of his handmaiden. For behold, from henceforth all generations shall call me blessed. For he that is mighty hath done to me great things, and holy is his name. Whether in Latin or English or some other language, many famous composers have set this text to music, including Bach, Vivaldi, Monteverdi, Rachmaninoff, and Rafe von Williams. It seems that Mary modeled her song on one in the Old Testament, Hannah's prayer in 1 Samuel 2, in which she rejoiced that she was to give birth to the prophet Samuel. It begins, My heart rejoiceth in the Lord. There are other parts of the Nativity story in Scripture which have also been traditionally viewed as songs or set to music as songs and sung. It is possible that as early as the 2nd century, Christians had already set to music and were singing as part of their worship the praise of the angels who announced the birth of the Savior to the shepherds. In Latin, this angelic praise is Gloria in Excelsius Deo, Luke 2, 14. In English, this is translated as Glory to God in the Highest. Augustine of Hippo was perhaps the greatest theologian in the entire history of the church since the days of the apostles. He gave his life to Christ with the help and guidance of the pastoral ministry of Ambrose, a 4th century bishop of Milan. Ambrose loved hymn singing and is known to have written a Christmas hymn himself. It was titled, Come, Redeemer of the Nations. A whole series of Christmas hymns were originally com uh, with originally composed lyrics, as opposed to the kind we have already discussed, which used the text for scripture for their lyrics, were written in the 4th century. Some of them are still sung today, whether in Latin or in translation. One is uh, titled, How Vain in the Cruel Herod's Fear. Records from the medieval period show that Christmas was celebrated, especially in cathedrals, with even more heightened musical contributions than at Easter. In other words, that Christmas was the one church festival that was most associated with special music. It was more important to secure the best singers for Christmas music than for any other time of the year. 
and the compositions for Christmas were more elaborate than at other times, and there were more of them. Also in the Middle Ages, sometimes the music would enact a nativity scene during the service. For instance, one group of singers would represent the angels and sing the good news to another group of singers playing the part of the shepherds, who would then walk out into the main part of the sanctuary and sing the good news to the congregation as a whole. Sometimes an additional group of singers would represent the wise men, and so on. A choir boy was sometimes dressed in Episcopal vestments and allowed to preside over the service as a boy bishop, dramatically and somewhat playfully representing the reversal between the high and the lowly that the gospel story declares, and which is the theme of Mary's song, the Mivikot. He hath put down the mighty from their seats and exalted, exalted them of low degree. Luke 152. Starting in the 13th century, Christmas carols and hymns started to be included that were not sung in Latin, but rather in the people's own language, such as German, French, or English. Christmas carols especially flourished in more domestic settings where lords and ladies would throw extravagant Christmas parties and songs would be performed or sung communally that told the sacred story of the nativity. Again, professional musicians would be in great demand during the Christmas season. The origin of the word Noel is very difficult to discern with any certainty. That's, I mean, you're a historian, I always tell you, if, if you can't really tell you know, which story is right, just pick your favorite. You know? so that's, <laughs> I'm going to give you the version that seems most convincing to me, but I admit there are, only one, there are other ones, uh, and the matter is obscure. I think Noel was a simple word of exclamation. In other words, in France, people would use uh, as a cheer word, Noel, just like we would say hooray. Uh, and it became specifically associated with Christmas and became a word that now means Christmas carol or even Christmas generally in French. Uh, thus, uh, there is a Cornish Christmas carol uh, which was first published in 1823 but was probably traditional in that region for a long time before that called the First Noel, which we just think. Again, the word is being used as a synonym for Christmas. Thus, the title means the first Christmas, in other words, the day of Christ's birth. Uh, this is the first stanza, as it is often sung today. Uh, the first Noel, the angel, did say, was to certain poor shepherds in fields as they lay, keeping their sheep on a cold winter's night that was so deep. Noel, 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 born is the king of Israel. In other words, singing is so associated with Christmas that in France, the very word Christmas, Noel, arose from the context of singing carols. St. Francis of Assisi had his followers um, write sacred songs in the popular style of street culture, uh, which Francis called praises. Francis invented the tradition of the live nativity scene, with, for instance, a real ox and donkey as a way to communicate the gospel story to ordinary people, which is very effective. I was just saying, as I drove to the airport to come here, I passed by the Presbyterian Church in town, and then said they were going to have a live nativity scene. I'm like, oh, I'm going to go see the donkey. Oh, they, they, they got me. I'm in. <laughs> these services would include these praise Christmas carols. The word carol has always been used in wide and pliable ways that defy any clear definition, uh, but it is most usually used in association with Christmas songs. And one definition would be the combination of a tune in the style of the popular songs of the people with lyrics that have a, sac a sacred theme. One of the most popular medieval Christmas carols is called in Latin, In Dulce Jubilo, 
which translates as in sweet rejoicing. There is a medieval, medieval legend for how we got in Dulcie Jubilo. According to the legend, it was revealed by angels who appeared to a friar and not only taught him the tune and lyrics, but also insisted that he get up and dance to it. <laughs> I tell all my students that my stories are all either true or interesting. <laughs> and I'm enchanted with the idea of angels ordering a medieval friar to dance to a song that rejoices over the coming of Christ in the Incarnation. Dulce Jubilo uh, was also sung in German, Swedish, and other languages. You may know a 19th century version of it in English, Good Christian Men Rejoice. It's, it's, it's in the hymnal here. The first stanza of it is, Good Christian Men Rejoice with heart and soul and voice. Give ye heed to what we say. News, news, Jesus Christ was born today. Ox and ass before him bow, and he is in the manger now. Christ is born today. Christ is born today. Musical arrangements for In Dulce Jubilo have also been made by leading composers, including J.S. Bach and Franz Liszt. <laughs> With the arrival of the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century, the reformer Martin Luther was also strongly committed to Christmas music. Similar to St. Francis and his praises, Martin Luther emphasized what he called chorales, hymns that were simpler to sing so that the whole congregation could join in rather than elaborate arrangements for the choir to perform while the congregation only listened, as had been the common practice in the medieval period. Luther wrote some Christmas hymns himself, some of which are still performed today in German-speaking contexts, and English translations of them are also sung in Lutheran congregations in English-speaking countries. Even the Pope Emeritus, uh, Benedict XVI, who is himself German, has always loved Luther's Christmas hymns and also other carols of the season that were written by his fellow Protestants in Luther's circle. Despite what is often claimed, however, it is not true that Martin Luther wrote the popular carol Away in the Manger. This was written by some American in the 19th century who I think wanted to give it added prestige by claiming it was handed down from Luther. Another theory is that it was written for a special service to commemorate the 400th anniversary of Luther's birth in 1883, and people just confused it being written to honor Luther with its being written by Luther. And as far as I'm concerned, it is just as well that the great theologian Martin Luther did not write Away in the Manger, because it is the one very popular sacred Christmas carol which has always struck me as theologically dubious. <laughs> The line, the little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes, lends itself to the heresy of docetism. <laughs> that Jesus was not fully human, but only seemed to be human. Uh, theologically, we affirm that he was a real human baby, so you betcha he cried. <laughs> a couple centuries after Martin Luther and the Apostle Reformation, the famous German composer J.S. Bach often wrote sacred Christmas music, including his glorious Christmas Oratorio, 1734. Another German Lutheran composer who extraordinarily was born in the exact same year as Bach was George Friedrich Handel. Handel moved to England, and therefore the lyrics are in English for his beloved sacred oratorio, The Messiah, 1741. It has three parts, and together they tell the whole story of Christ's work from its being prophesied in the Old Testament through Christ's death and resurrection all the way to the final judgment. The work has become strongly associated with the Christmas season, 
But part one is where the theme of Christ's nativity is presented. It includes songs such as, Behold, a virgin shall conceive, for unto us a child is born, and there were shepherds abiding in the fields. German Protestants, however, were more open to hymns in church than was the case in the English-speaking world. England, Scotland, and America were more influenced by the Reformed wing of the Reformation, most associated with John Calvin in Geneva, and they therefore tended to stick to singing only the Psalms in worship. Congregational worship, however, was transformed by the English revival in the 18th century, key leaders of which were John Wesley and George Whitfield. Religion had become cold and distant, often deliberately so, because religiously motivated wars in the 17th century, including the English Civil War, had made authorities afraid of ordinary people whose personal faith seemed too intense. In the 18th century, across the denominations, but most especially in the Church of England, the congregation was very passive during the worship service. Everything was done for them by professionals, that is, the ordained ministers. You would never even hear a layperson offer a public prayer in a church. Sermons were about doctrine and morals. And by morals was meant admonishing the poor to know their place and to respect the aristocracy. John Wesley was already an ordained Anglican clergyman and had been a missionary to Georgia, which was then the newest British colony in the New World to receive a charge from the king, before he had his conversion experience. Wesley became convinced that although he knew a lot about God, that is, he was very good at teaching Orthodox doctrine accurately, he nevertheless did not have a personal living relationship with God. This sense of his impoverished spiritual state led on to his landmark Aldersgate conversion experience, and therefore to his life and ministry being transformed by his gaining a personal sense of assurance of salvation, that God had saved him, even him. Wesley and Whitfield became preachers of the new birth, of this conversion experience that had changed their lives and ignited their ministries. Ordinary people were alienated from the churches in lots of ways, including because of pew rents, which meant that people were seated in church based on how wealthy and powerful they were in secular society. Wesley and Whitfield preached to ordinary people and preached messages aimed straight at their hearts, not just doctrinal theory or the social order, but the drama of salvation in an individual human soul, a living relationship with the living Christ. Another leader of the evangelical revival was John Wesley's brother, Charles Wesley. Charles was a pastor and an evangelist, but he is most remembered today as a hymn writer. He um, started writing a hymn just two days after his conversion experience in 1738. He went on to write over 9,000 worship songs. Around 400 of them are still in use today. The very next year after his conversion experience, Charles Wesley wrote a carol he called Hymn for Christmas Day. George Whitfield accurately helped actually helped smooth out some of Charles' rather too obscure lyrics. The result was Hark the Herald Angels Sing. In the 19th century, it was set uh, to a tune by the composer Felix Mendelssohn, and that is the version that is usually sung today. The words have also been, poli poli have also been polished now and then over the subsequent years to make them clearer and more accessible to a modern audience. It is a carol that is particularly theologically rich. Uh, the first two stanzas are, Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. 
Peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. Joyful all ye nations rise, join the triumph of the skies. With the angelic host proclaim, Christ is born in Bethlehem. Hark, the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord. Late in time behold him come, offspring of a virgin's womb. Veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. The evangelical movement was the great movement of the 18th century in the church. In the 19th century, there was another movement in the Church of England which also had wider influence on other denominations. It is known as the Oxford Movement or Tractarianism. It gave a renewed emphasis upon the sacraments and on church tradition, pulling back uh, in the Catholic direction rather than the Reformed one of the Puritans. It was especially popular with the sons and daughters of evangelicals. Evangelicalism emphasized a dramatic adult conversion experience. That was a template for a spiritual journey that children of evangelicals who had been raised in the faith and never rebelled against it, but had grown up with a real faith in Christ, often found difficult to map onto their own lives. A more traditional view of church life seemed to fit better with their experience of growing up in the faith rather than finding it as an adult. One of the movement's most famous leaders, John Henry Newman, had been raised in an evangelical home. The famous evangelical abolitionist William Wilberforce also had sons who were attracted to the Oxford Movement. The Oxford Movement took as one of its mottos the beauty of holiness, arguing that the gospel is beautiful, so it ought to be depicted in beautiful ways. This included aesthetically pleasing church buildings, which you have, so check. <laughs> the Tractarians admired the Gothic cathedrals of the medieval period, and thus numerous church buildings from the Victorian age were designed in the Gothic style. They also cared a great deal about church decorations. These would change with the seasons of the church year. The Oxford movement especially made popular in the modern era, decorating the interior churches for the Christmas season with holly branches and evergreens and so on. Furthermore, the Oxford movement put a fresh and deeper emphasis on the doctrine of the Incarnation, helping to give more importance to Christmas, the Feast of Christ's Nativity. One of the very best poets of the 19th century was Christina Rossetti. Rossetti was a very devout churchwoman and a devotee of the Oxford movement. Rossetti titled one of her poems simply, A Christmas Carol. Today, however, it is typically titled by its first line, In the Bleak Midwinter. It was first published in 1872. It has been set to music by a range of famous composers. Uh, the most commonly used setting for congregational singing is the one by Gustav Holtz. Here are its first and last stanzas. In the bleak midwinter, frosty wind made moan, earth stood hard as iron, water like a stone, snow had fallen, snow on snow, snow on snow, in the bleak midwinter long ago. What can I give him, poor as I am? If I were a shepherd, I would bring a lamb. If I were a wise man, I would do my part. Yet what can I give him, give my heart? Like us here in the United States, the Holy Land is also in its winter in December. 
Nevertheless, Rossetti has let her British imagination run away with her a bit to envision such a snowstorm in Bethlehem, <laughs> which has a more temperate climate than more northerly regions. This is uh, uh, modern pictures of, of Bethlehem at Christmas time. Uh, Rossetti imagines a northern setting. Snow had fallen, snow on snow, snow on snow. That happens in Chicago, let me tell you. We had snow yesterday in Chicago. I wasn't there, I was here, but I got pictures. <laughs> it is possible, but rare, to have snow at Bethlehem on December 25th. But again, not heaps and heaps that Rossetti so evocatively conjures up. Another trend in the 19th century was the rise of modern travel, which made it much more possible for ordinary people to visit the Holy Land. Mark Twain actually went as a journalist on the very first American package tour of the Holy Land. He wrote a satirical book about this trip, The Innocents Abroad, 1869. When the tour guide tells their party that they are looking at the tomb of Adam, Twain affects to start weeping. When he is asked by others on the trip why he is so moved, he explains that it was deeply touching to be so far away from Missouri and to find a blood relation. <laughs> a minister who had arranged his own trip a few years earlier, however, was Phillips Brooks, the pastor of the Church of the Holy Trinity in Philadelphia. He went to the various biblical sites in the Holy Land in 1865. In 1868, Phillips Brooks was inspired by his memories of that trip to write some lyrics for a Christmas carol to be sung at his church's Christmas Sunday school service for that year. Here are the first and last stanzas of Philip Brooks's lyrics. O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. Above thy deep and dreamless sleep the silent stars go by. Yet in thy dark street shineth the everlasting light. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. O holy child of Bethlehem, descend to us, we pray. Cast out our sin and enter in. Be born in us today. We hear the Christmas angels, the great glad tidings tell. O come to us, abide in us, our Lord Emmanuel. I once had a neighbor who was self-identified as an atheist, um, though he was clearly a seeker. He confessed to me that one of the most powerful lines he had ever heard in any song of any kind were the hopes and fears of all the years I met in me tonight. As senior pastors are wont to do, Brooks gave these lyrics to his church's organist, Louis Redner, just a few days before Christmas and demanded that he come up with a tune for them. Redner says that he was in despair about this task. Quote, but I was roused from sleep late in the night hearing an angel strain whispering in my ear. Redner's tune is still the standard one used in the United States, though various many composers have also set the lyrics for Old Little Town of Bethlehem, including Rafe Vaughn Williams. <coughs> Sacred Christmas music is particularly ecumenical. Christians from different traditions happily embrace each other's carols. Reformed churches sing Methodist hymns, and Methodist congregations sing Reformed hymns, and so on. This is true even for Catholics and Protestants. 
For many devout Protestants, their very favorite Christmas carol is one that was written by a Catholic priest, Silent Night. The priest who wrote the lyrics was Joseph Moore. He was the pastor of the appropriately named St. Nicholas Church in Oberdorf, Austria. In the run-up to Christmas 1818, however, the church's organ had been damaged, necessitating an alternative musical plan for the Christmas Eve service. Moore had written this little poem, Still a Nacht, as it is called in the original German. Once again, a pastor demands that a church organist can rise to the occasion on short notice. <laughs> Moore's church organist was Franz uh, Gruber, and the priest asked him, because the organ was broken, broken, to write a simple tune for his lyrics that could be played on guitar. This is how Silent Night was born. Once again, I think we see a pattern of songs that are simple enough to be sung by whole congregations winning out over elaborate compositions to be formed by professional musicians and choirs. Silent Night quickly spread and was instantly popular wherever it went. It was first sung in America in 1839. Today, it has been registered by UNICEF as an important piece of world heritage. Here is the English translation of Moore's lyrics. Silent Night, Holy Night, all is calm, all is bright. Round young virgin, mother and child, holy infant, so tender and mild. Sleep in heavenly peace. Sleep in heavenly peace. Silent night, holy night, shepherds quake at the sight. Glory stream from heaven afar. Heavenly hosts sing alleluia. Christ the Savior is born. Christ the Savior is born. Silent night, holy night, son of God, loves pure light. Radiant beams from thy holy face, with the dawn of redeeming grace, Jesus, Lord, at thy birth. Jesus, Lord, at thy birth. Christmas has strong associations with peace because it celebrates the birth of the Prince of Peace, and moreover because the angels announced peace on earth. Christmas also has strong associations with home and family, <clears throat> and being close to one's loved ones in a domestic setting. It has therefore always been felt to be particularly poignant to experience Christmas during a time of war. My father fought in the Korean War, and he often spoke about how emotionally powerful he and his fellow soldiers found the song, I'll Be Home for Christmas, which indeed had originally been written as a tribute to the soldiers fighting in the Second World War. I am getting ahead of myself, however, for this talk. It's still in the Victorian period. Uh, by far, America's most deadly war was the Civil War. Arguably, America's greatest poet at that time was Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. I was educated so long ago that when I was in junior high school, me and my classmates all memorized, as part of the standard curriculum, Longfellow's Paul Revere's Rye. Longfellow's oldest son was named Charles. He was only 16 years old when the war started, but very keen to join it. His father, the great poet, forbade his son from enlisting. Eventually, Charles ran away and joined the army anyway. At the start of Advent, 1863, Charles Longfellow was severely wounded in a battle. Henry Wadsworth Longfellow had a lot of strong emotions to contend with. His oldest son, still a teenager, had defied him to go to war, and now he had been shot, and it looked like he might die from his wound. And it was Christmas time. America's greatest poet responded to the situation by writing, I heard the bells on Christmas Day. Longfellow's words are about the contradiction of the message of Christmas and the reality of war. 
This is a Christmas carol which is also uh, in your congregational hymnal. Here are the first, third, and fourth stanzas from the version of them that is usually sung today. I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play, and wild and sweet the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And in despair I bowed my head, there is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then pealed the bells more loud and deep, God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail, with peace on earth, goodwill to men. Once again, it was left to a church organist to find a tune for the lyrics. In this case, it was done by John Collin. One of the most remarkable scenes in all of modern warfare was the Christmas truce of 1914, during the First World War. It was a completely unofficial event that arose spontaneously from the common soldiers at the front. Despite military leaders on both sides insisting that there must be no truce, the ordinary soldiers simply could not bring themselves to try to kill people on the day when the Prince of Peace was born. Instead, they sang Christmas carols to one another, especially still a knocked, silent night. This led on to impromptu, impromptu worship services out in no man's land that included soldiers from opposing armies and Catholics as well as Protestants from both sides. Some, um, sometimes with a, both a Catholic priest and a Protestant minister co-officiating at the service. My current research project is on military chaplains during the First World War. A group of 17 of them all contributed to a book in 1917 called The Church in the Furnace. The soldiers good-naturedly make fun of it as the fat in the fire. The purpose of The Church in the Furnace was to reflect on how the church needed to change in the light of the lessons of the war. One of the things that the war revealed to the chaplains was how out of touch with the church and the Christian faith were vast numbers of men from the working classes. One of the chapters was titled Worship and Services and was written by Eric Milner White. He had been a student at Cambridge and was from a rather elite world. He was shocked to see how far out of touch the Church of England was with the lives of ordinary people. Milner White wrote, we never guessed of old how removed the church's services are from the common wants, nor how intellectual are its prayers and forms of devotion. Its climate to the simple ardent Christian is often ice. Milner White goes on to argue that the church must begin some bold experiments to create services that are more simple and accessible, that are more seeker-friendly, as we would say it today. After uh, his war service, Milner White became the dean of King's College, Cambridge University, a college that was and is famous for its great choir. He sought to follow his own advice and experiment with new worship services that would be more accessible. Milner White's greatest triumph was the service he introduced into the Christmas season, the Nine Lessons and Carols. The lessons are readings from the Bible. These begin with passages from Genesis to show the fall of man and the need for salvation. Go through Isaiah prophesying that a Savior will come, and then on to the nativity passages in the Gospels of Luke and Matthew. These readings are interspersed with the singing of carols. The opening hymn for this service is always, Once in Royal David City. This was written by Cecil Francis Alexander, a pastor's wife. She wrote it in the 1840s as a hymn for children. Once again, a church organist set her lyrics to music, Henry Galton. The tradition at King's is that a voice sings the first verse as a solo, 
It is, once in Royal David's city stood a lowly cattle shed where a mother laid her baby in a manger for his bed. Mary was that mother mild, Jesus Christ, her little child. They don't want to um, make the boy too nervous, so they don't pick until right before the service, which boy's going to sing. That's fascinating. Milner White's service of nine lessons and carols at King's College, Cambridge, was first broadcast on the radio in 1928. It was first televised in 1954. It is an enormously popular service around the world, with literally millions of people tuning in every year. The tradition was continued even through the dangers and bombings of the Second World War. My father liked to listen to the radio version, and he made sure every year that he never missed it. Lots of churches, including in the United States, and from a variety of denominations, also host their own service of nine lessons and carols. Milner White's dream of offering a more popular and accessible worship service has certainly been fulfilled. We have been proceeding more or less chronologically, and we are now about to make the turn to the 20th and 21st centuries, and begin there by focusing on songs that do not have sacred lyrics, but rather are about the purely cultural aspect of the holiday. To do that, however, it is worth beginning by glancing back at the 19th century, because one of the most popular of these cultural songs was written by James um, Pierpoint in 1857. He called it One Horse Open Sleigh, but it now goes with the title Jingle Bells. Please do not start singing. <laughs> Pierpoint did not write it to be a Christmas song. It was merely a celebration of the joys that can be had in the winter season. It has, however, become a Christmas song over time, and indeed perhaps the one that more Americans can sing the first verse of by memory than any other. Because it is so familiar, I will only read for you one of the later um, verses that has usually been dropped. A day or two ago, the story I must tell, I went out on the snow, and on my back I fell. A jit was riding by in a one-horse open sleigh. He left as there I sprawling lay, but quickly drove away. Jingle bells, jingle bells, jingle all the way. Oh, what fun it is to ride in a one-horse open sleigh. Todd Decker, who is a professor of music at Washington University in St. Louis, has done research to identify the core repertory of Christmas music in American popular culture. In other words, those Christmas songs which are most popular, which get the most airplay on radio stations, which are most often bought or downloaded and so on, uh, and uh, covered by numerous artists. He research, his research identified the top 25 Christmas songs that are the most enduringly popular. The oldest one on the list is from the 18th century, God Rest Ye Merry Gentlemen. The newest one that has firmly established itself as an enduring Christmas must is from 1993, Mariah Carey's All I Want for Christmas is You. The three songs that have the greatest number of recordings by different artists are White Christmas, Jingle Bells, and The Little Drummer Boy. Here is the full list of America's core repertory of commercial Christmas music listed in the order of when the song was written from the oldest to the most recent. God rest you merry gentlemen. Silent Night, The First Noel, Joy to the World, Jingle Bells, Santa Claus is Coming to Town, Winter Wonderland, We Wish You a Merry Christmas, a Little Drummer Boy, White Christmas, I'll Be Home for Christmas, Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas, Let It Snow, Let It Snow, Let It Snow, The Christmas Song, Sleigh Ride, Blue Christmas, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, <laughs> It's Beginning to Look a Lot Like Christmas, Silver Bells, 
Jingle Bell Rock, rocking around the Christmas tree. It's the most wonderful time of the year. A holly jelly Christmas, last Christmas. All I want for Christmas is you. <laughs> One thing that you can see in that list is a focus on an ideal of a winterly, northerly, snowy celebration. That ideal is an emotional shorthand for nostalgia, for a wistful longing for what is now gone or far away, that is one's own childhood or home or family. The greatest example of this is, of course, White Christmas, written by one of America's greatest popular songwriters, Irving Berlin. I'm dreaming of a white Christmas just like the ones I used to know, where the treetops glisten and children listen to hear sleigh bells in the snow. The contrast between the fantasy and one's current life is part of its emotional pull. Berlin actually wrote it on a hot day in Southern California. <laughs> that context is made explicit in the seldom sung introductory verse that Berlin wrote. The sun is shining, the grass is green, the orange and palm trees sway. There's never been such a day in Beverly Hills, LA, but it's December the 24th and I'm longing to go up north. <laughs> Again, that longing is itself a metaphor for homesickness. White Christmas was first recorded in 1942, and central to its appeal was the fact that so many people were separated from their loved ones because of the realities of the Second World War, most especially soldiers serving abroad, missing home. Perhaps you know the film of the same name, 1954, which in its opening section has Bing Crosby singing White Christmas to American soldiers in Europe during the Second World War, even in the midst of incoming shellfire. That, however, was a sort of reprise of a similar scene from an earlier Bing Crosby film, Blue Skies, 1946. It has a scene in which Bing Crosby sings White Christmas to American soldiers in the Pacific Theater. There are palm trees, just like in Berlin's introductory stanza, and the men are shirtless and hot and grimy and sweating. The contrast is the poignancy, and therefore the point. A similar song was written in 1945, just a couple of years after White Christmas, is The Christmas Song. The tune was composed by the popular pianist and singer Mel Torme, and the lyrics were written by Robert Wells. Once again, this was literally Christmas in July. They wrote it together on a hot day in July in Southern California. Chestnuts roasting on an open fire, Jack Frost nipping at your nose, Yuletide carols being sung by a choir, and folks dressed up like Eskimos. It was made famous through recording by Nat King Cole. <clears throat> I'm not going to quote any lyrics from this next song, because I'm sure you can recall one of the most famous cultural <laughs> Christmas songs of them all. <laughs> Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer uh, is a triumph of American marketing and commercial enterprise. <laughs> the department store Montgomery Ward had a tradition of giving out coloring books to children over the Christmas season, and an employee in its advertising department, Robert Louis May, was assigned to write an original story for the 1939 Christmas season. He came up with Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, and Montgomery Ward gave away 2.4 million copies. Some years later, May's brother-in-law, Johnny Marks, turned the story into a song <coughs> which was recorded by the singing cowboy, Gene Autry. Rudolph has become a core character in the cultural Christmas. 
It is quite remarkable to think that he is not rooted in some centuries-old folklore, but was invented in 1939 as an advertising stunt. <laughs> it would be wrong, however, to assume that all the popular Christmas music written in the 20th century and 21st centuries is completely secular. Again, one of the three most recorded modern Christmas songs is The Little Drummer Boy. It was written in 1942 by the American composer Catherine Davis. She claimed it was based on a traditional Czech carol, but that seems to have been just a way to have made an old-fashioned Christmas allure to her song. She just made it up herself. My point is that it is a song explicitly about the sacred story of the Nativity, a focus on the newborn king, but also mentioning Mary and the manger setting with an ox and a lamb. The Little Drummer Boy was first recorded by the Trap Family Singers, a group made famous by their story having been the basis of the film The Sound of Music. Since, since then, it, it has been performed by an enormous range of pop stars, including, just to take some stars uh, whose first names start with a J, Johnny Cash, Joan Baez, Johnny Mathis, and Justin Bieber. <laughs> Another example of the top 50 of the core repertoire is Mary's Boy Child, 1956. It was written by Jester Harrison, an African-American from North Carolina who was an expert on black spirituals. Harrison had friends who were from the West Indies, and this inspired him to write in a Calypso style. The song was first recorded by Harry Bonfeltane. It has been recorded by everyone from John Denver to the Bee Gees, Yet his lyrics are as straightforward a telling of the biblical story of Christ's birth as one could imagine. Long time ago in Bethlehem, so the Holy Bible say, Mary's boy child, Jesus Christ, was born on Christmas Day. Hark, now hear the angels sing, a new king born today, and man will live forevermore because of Christmas Day. Another example is Do You Hear What I Hear, written in 1962 by Noel Regeny and Gloria Shawn. Again, it has been performed by innumerable pop stars, including Whitney Houston, Glenn Campbell, and Bob Dylan. Yet the lyrics are about the nativity story. A child, a child, shivers in the cold. Let us bring him silver and gold. Let us bring him silver and gold. To slip into the 21st century, Harry Connick Jr.'s second Christmas album was Harry for the Holidays, 2003. It contains classic cultural Christmas songs such as Frosty the Snowman and Santa Claus is Coming to Town. Yet it also includes a song with sacred lyrics that Connick himself composed for the album, I Come With Love. This song is written from the perspective of Jesus, explaining the mission of his incarnation. He comes to us with love. I think it deserves to become a Christmas classic. I wish I could uh, do, some, do some programming of music on, on the radio stations in my area. Okay, last paragraph. Finally, let me remind you that the core Christmas repertoire in our commercial pop world also includes numerous Christmas carols from past centuries that have Christian and biblical themes to them, including Silent Night, Joy to the World, O Come All Ye Faithful, It Came Upon a Midnight Clear, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, What Child Is This, O Little Town of Bethlehem, and O Holy Night. A pop station in the Chicago market where I am is 93.9 Light FM. It just plays standard top 10 and easy listening uh, pop kind of material um, all the rest of the year. When I went to its website while working on this lecture in August, they were featuring stories about Cher and the Rolling Stones. Yet even 
Yet every November, they shift to an all-Christmas music format for the six weeks or so before December 25th. They're already going. Uh, they like the, the core uh, rotation, and thus there's plenty of Wham's Last Christmas and Brenda Lee's rocking around the Christmas tree and so on. Yet it is quite, yet, uh, it is, um, quite common as well for the very next song to be one that proclaims joy to the world, the Savior reigns, or to speak of round young virgin, mother and child, holy infant so tender and mild, or to invite the holy child of Bethlehem to cast out our sin and enter into our hearts, or to announce tidings of comfort and joy because Christ our Savior was born on Christmas Day, and so on. We should pause and notice and be grateful for the fact that for six weeks or so during every year, even pop stations sometimes play songs that tell the story of the gospel of salvation through Jesus Christ. Amen.